Today's podcast episode is sponsored by the Afterlife Awareness Conference. The Afterlife Conference will be virtual again this year in 2021, and we hope you'll join us online June 24th through the 27th. As we have done for the last 11 years, we unite the disciplines in exploring the survival of consciousness after death, offering wisdom from hospice professionals, physicians, mediums, shamans, scholars, and counselors who share a deep understanding of death and beyond. This year, we are honored to have Dr. Robert Thurman, a worldwide authority on Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, as our keynote speaker. He'll be teaching us how to die like a Tibetan Buddhist and is also offering a workshop on Buddhist cosmology. We are also proud to feature returning scholar Dr. Ken Doka, senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America, who will talk about the mystical experiences of the dying, and Dr. Jeff Black, a psychiatrist who is also a shamanic practitioner who works with ritual practices for death and bereavement. In addition, we have general sessions addressing everything from music, Phantology and death doula work to ancestral healing practices and grief support. And there are continuing education credits available for licensed professionals. Visit our website at afterlifeconference.com for all the details. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hi, everyone. How are you doing today? I wanted to let you know of a podcast that you're actually going to listen to. I did not do the interview, but I helped to facilitate Terry Daniel and Lowry Brown from the Final Exit Network to come together and have a discussion. I really felt like this was an area of expertise more for Terry Daniel, who was the founder of the Afterlife Awareness Conference. I know that she had a lot of questions to ask Lowry about the Final Exit Network. So I figured I would just let the two of them have this discussion and I was going to sit back and relax and just listen. And I think that you're going to find it fascinating. Now, the Final Exit Network is a sponsor of the Afterlife Awareness Conference. And again, that is being held June 24th through the 27th. Tickets are still on sale at afterlifeconference.com and they're being sold through Eventbrite. So I want to give you a promo code that you can enter that will give you $40 off the general admission ticket. And that code is PATH40. Again, PATH40. That gives you $40 off of the general admission ticket. And um, I think you are really going to enjoy this conversation between Terry Daniel and Lowry Brown. So here it is. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. Terry Daniel. I'm the founder of the Afterlife Conference, which for 2021 is going to be our 11th year. We're very excited that we're still here. Uh, this will be our second year online virtual. Last year, we had to change it from the live conference to an online conference because of COVID. Perhaps next year, hopefully 2022, we'll be live again. And uh, I am here today talking with Lowry Brown, who represents presents Final Exit Network. And I think many of you have probably heard of this organization and don't even realize it, but they are going to be one of the sponsors and affiliates for the Afterlife Conference this year. And Lowry's going to talk to us a little bit about what Final Exit Network does. So welcome, Lowry. And would you just start by introducing yourself briefly and telling us uh, what you do there? 
Sure. Well, first off, Terry, it's great to be with you. So thanks so much for having me. Um, as you said, I am with Final Exit Network. I am the client services director for our Exit Guide program, which is sort of our flagship program that we have. Um, I have been with Final Exit Network as a member, probably, I don't know, since 2014 maybe. And I trained as an Exit Guide in 2016 and so have been involved with the Exit Guide program since then. You know, my background in the right to die arena started a long, long time ago. I grew up in a family that had these values about quality over quantity in life. And I think my parents had me sign my first advance directive when I was maybe 16 or something like that. Um, and like so many, so many of us, I've seen deaths that would, I would not have wanted for myself. You know, I had a grandmother and an aunt, both who slipped into dementia. Both were stunningly intelligent, independent women who would not have wanted that to be their final chapter. And so for me, this work um, is very personal in that sense. So that's how I, I come to my role at Final Exit Network. So you mentioned the term exit guide, and of course, everybody's now wondering what that means. But before we talk about that, let's go back up to the to the bottom of the roots of this and tell us what the Final Exit Network does. Mm -hmm. So Final Exit Network, it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we advocate in the right to die sphere. Uh, we provide information and we provide support to individuals who value quality over quantity in life and who don't want to be drawn into long dying processes that subject them to indignity and suffering that they consider unacceptable. Uh, for competent adults who meet our criteria, the Exit Guide program itself will provide education on safe and comfortable methods of ending one's own life. Mm -hmm. And for individuals who choose that path, we will be with them. So they have people to accompany them as they cross that final threshold. It should be really clear that we do not, because of laws, we do not provide physical assistance and we don't provide the means. And so that would be one thing that separates you from physician-assisted death. I'm sure there are more, there's more than one thing. Um, but I think a lot of people would say, well, is this the same as uh, physician-assisted death? And it's not. How is it different? Um, excellent question. Um, it's the same and different. You're right. Um, the idea is empowering individuals to make their own choice. And that's true of medical aid and dying. And it's true of what we do. Um, medical aid and dying in this country, first of all, it's not available everywhere. It's only available in a subset of states. Um, and the way the laws are written in this country, uh, it's, a very, it's a very narrow band of people that can turn to the medical community for support in dying. Um, the way the laws are written in this country, in all of the states where it's available, you have to be within six months of death. You have to have two doctors certify that they think you're within six months of death. Um, and so those laws are excellent. They're, they're wonderful, they support people, but there are a lot of people that those laws don't support. Um, you a know, lot I of us feel that those laws are, are too restrictive. Exactly. Yes. And, and I would certainly agree with that. Um, 
obviously, you know, the classic example is dementia, that here is this disease that we all consider to be horrific. And yet, if you have to be competent at the time that you take the medication and medical aid and dying, but you have to be within six months of death, by the time you're within six months of death, you're not competent. So um, they can't be helped. Also, you know, sometimes people who are suffering from neurodegenerative diseases can't necessarily swallow um, or there might be other physical impairments that, that make it difficult for them to use um, the law when they're that close to death. You know, I'm a hospice chaplain and um, I see patients in nursing homes that are so far gone, you know, they can't talk, they can't communicate at all. They're bedridden for the most part. Sometimes somebody can pick them up and put them in a wheelchair. They've got bed sores, you know, they've got uh, a catheter. Um, and I visit them and I try to talk to them and give them spiritual support, but they're, there's nobody there. They're in there, but they just can't communicate outward. And I come back every time feeling so sad, not because they're dying, but because they're living. And, and you know, I think, why is this person here in this condition? And the reason is because they've had so many medical interventions. You know, they've had a, a bunch of... Um, stents put in their heart, or chemotherapy, dialysis, they've just been intervention after intervention after intervention for years and years and years. For what? So they could end up here like this? It is, you know, these are the stories that just put knife after knife after knife through my heart. Um, you know, it is wonderful what medical technology can do and how it can extend life when quality is good. We can save people to continue to live. It's great. Um, but there does then seem to be this backside of, well, we've saved you this long. So now you have to keep going because we just have the technology to keep you alive. Um, I should maybe take a quick jump back. You know, my area of expertise is our exit guide program. Um, but Final Exit Network does have a few other um, programs that can be perhaps more supportive in the situation that you're describing. Um, I know you've mentioned Althea Halchuk, who is our Final Exit Network's surrogate consultant. And she is available free of charge for people to call who are the healthcare representative for someone else. So the person that you just described who, you know, is not responding, doesn't show any interest in life, if their healthcare representative is trying to tell the facility where they're living, hey, no antibiotics, keep this person comfortable, let her go, and they're not getting traction, and the facility is like, oh, well, we're not into the murder, like, you know, and basically refusing to... Um, acknowledge and respect the individual's choices as laid out in their advanced directive. Um, Althea is available to be called, consulted. She can give people counseling on, on the wording to use, how to get the attention of healthcare practitioners. You know, if worse comes to worse, she might be able to bring in some legal counsel to really make sure that, you know, people's advanced directives are being honored. Because some yeah. of the reason people end up going like that, their friends and family are saying, look, stop, stop, stop. And our medical system is just steamrolling forward. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about hospice patients, so that's not so much of an issue with them. With Oh, that's true. You know, yeah. they've already accepted what's happening, but it's just taken them a long time to die. 
Right. And it's, you know, it's torture for the family because with, you know, with hospice, I mean, the Medicare requirement is that you're going to die within six months, but nobody ever knows if that's true. And sometimes people will live much for years and they'll come in and out of hospice, but they're just hovering in that limbo place. Um, God, there's so many things I want to ask you. Tell, let's start with, okay, so basically what Final Exit Network does is it educates people on how to end their own life. And what is the criteria for somebody coming into your program that wants to do that? And, and how do you screen them in terms of verifying their medical conditions or whatever it is that you do? Mm-hmm. Um, so we do have a list of criteria and we you know, we have a pretty robust team of, of volunteers. So we're evaluating all of the people who work with us. We call them clients, you know, the whole way through. So um, if somebody calls to ask about our program or how it works, our coordinators are available. They talk to lots of people about end of life choice. So our coordinators probably serve the most people. They, they just answer questions, direct people to resources. Where do you get forms for advanced directives? For people who are appropriate for the Exit Guide program, the coordinator is the person who would work with you, help you submit your application. So the coordinator is, is watching the situation and evaluating the applicant. So what's appropriate? Define appropriate. Okay, I can, I'll get to criteria. Okay. Um, I was just going to sort of say who's looking at it okay. and then go to our criteria. Um, so then as part of our application process, uh, there's also just an interview by another volunteer. So that person is kind of assessing the applicant. Uh, we have a medical evaluation committee who uh, is responsible for looking at the medical records to be sure that the individual meets our medical criteria. So they're looking at it. And then once the guides are assigned, the guides are also constantly evaluating the circumstances and whether things seem appropriate and safe. So there's a lot of eyes on every case. Yes, yes. Um, our criterion, um, we have a lot of criteria. Uh, one must be an adult. Um, one must be competent. Um, one must be physically able to do what's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll pause for a moment here because, you know, there are some issues with that particular criterion um, in that the method of self-deliverance that we currently teach is the use of inert gas, which is fast, comfortable, reliable, um, but it does involve a a relatively heavy tank and you have to be able to open a valve. And so- And you have to be able to go get the tank. And you have to be able to get the tank, you have to be able to procure it, all of those things. It's not wildly complicated, but obviously there are people who are in a state of debilitation where those things are no longer possible. and unfortunately, the way our laws are written, um, while it is not illegal to choose to end your own life, it is not illegal to be with someone who chooses to end his or her own life, it's not illegal to know that somebody is planning to end his or her own life, all of those things are legal. Um, but state laws often make it illegal to assist. Right. Um, and so what that means is that somebody who is physically disabled in a way that they couldn't procure the tank or open the valve or do things like that, you know, simply doesn't have the same options available to them at the end of life that the physically able-bodied do. And, yeah. and that's wrong, yeah. um, but it is the way our laws are written. You know, as anybody who's read Barbara Mancini's book, Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath, knows, 
it's so easy to falsely accuse somebody of assisting and then you can be dragged into an investigation. So, so the healthcare representative for somebody, just let's just use these hospice patients, you know, they obviously can't do what's required. But if they have an advanced directive that designates somebody to make decisions for them, can that person go procure the tank and do all those things? Probably not. No, I didn't think so. Yeah. No, the the laws don't make any distinction between whether you have an advanced directive, whether you're competent or you're able to speak, but you can't use your hands. It doesn't matter. You have so you to physically really have to make this plan pretty far in advance before you your condition degenerates to that level. Yeah, um, it's not as far in advance as you might think, but yes, you do have to go while you are still able. Yeah. So especially for individuals facing neurodegenerative diseases and things like that, where physical ability becomes an issue, that is something you need to keep pay attention to. And so tell us a little bit about how the surrogate program works for dementia. I think that's really such a great program and um, I can't really describe it very well. I know that's Althea's uh, area, but how does it work exactly? So the surrogate consultant, um, she is available, as I said, to support individuals who are trying to get somebody else's advanced directive honored. Okay. but is having difficulty. So she's available to counsel, support, possibly being in legal support to get places that, to get medical facilities that are sort of refusing to honor the patient's wishes via the surrogate. And did I also understand correctly when I read this um, that the surrogate can help you, let's just say it's me, and can give me some wording to add to my advanced directive that says, I want to use the services of Final Exit Network when my condition gets to whatever. But if I ha- be, have dementia before that time comes, I hereby give permission, speaking now while I'm still of sound mind, that later on I can do that. I see, I don't know how to describe it very well. Is that right? Um, yes, yes and no. Um, so as I said, you can't... Um, Final Exit Network cannot provide guide support to somebody who is A, no longer competent, or B, doesn't have the physical. Right, even if you designate it before you become incompetent. Okay, I understand. The law still considers that assistance. But what we do have, um, if you go to our website, we have a, what we call the Supplemental Advanced Directive for Dementia Care. Um, That is something anybody can use. You can sign it. You would add it to your regular Advanced Directive. And what that does is it clearly lays out instructions to your healthcare representative, to your healthcare surrogate, that if I reach a certain stage of dementia where I'm no longer expressing any interest in food, then I want you to not feed me, not provide hydration, but keep me comfortable and let me die. Okay. Because we read all of these horror cases of people who don't show any interest in eating or drinking, but if you put a spoon to their mouth, they sort of reflexively open their mouth and they can just be kept alive for years that way. So um, it's permission for VSED, for voluntary So stop. exactly. It's permission for, or it's instructions to your healthcare surrogate saying, this is what I want you to do when I reach this state. Um, and so again, that's our healthcare. If somebody has that signed and it's a part of their advanced directive, you know, and they're having trouble with the facility 
not honoring those wishes, Althea can jump in and be supportive. And as I said, possibly bring in um, legal support if needed to make sure that it's, that it's honored. That's excellent. That's a really an excellent program. And again, you know, if a person's in hospice, you know, that they'll be educated about that as an option. Yeah. And certainly hospices are very familiar with voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. And Yeah. Wow. This is so great. Um, so can you give me like a typical scenario of somebody kind of make up a story like John Doe comes and his condition is such and such. And what happens from the moment he contacts you to the moment he takes his last breath? I know that's a tall order, but I think our listeners would just want to know that. <laughs> that's quite all right. Um, I might, if you don't mind, jump back. There's was, there was a few more criterion we didn't sure. discuss. Um, so we do, we do also, you know, we want to make sure that everybody knows what their treatment options are. So we do require, we don't require anybody to get medical treatment that they don't want, but we do require that they know what their options are. So if you're going to choose to end your life, we want to know that you were aware of other options you could have chosen. Um, and we also uh, require that one's closest loved ones be aware of and not opposed to your choice. Um, Can you really so, require that? I mean, what if they're not? Then what happens? What if they're not supportive? Um, you know, it is a bit of a balancing act, uh, but, you know, we respect individuals' autonomy, um, and we also respect their relationships, and we try to honor both. Um, if we're going to bring society to a place where rational self-deliverance is understood and respected, then we have to bring our loved ones with us. So do you um, provide some sort of, like, family counseling where they you gather them all together and talk about it and as a family and try to help them understand? Yeah. And that's actually something that as a guide, I spend an enormous amount of time doing. Um, it's, yeah. as you well know, our society is not one that talks about death a whole lot. And they certainly, we don't certainly talk about a chosen death very often. So, you know, by the time somebody gets to a place where they're considering ending their life, there are often a lot of conversations that need to happen. Yes. And so our guides and our coordinators, you know, will work with the individual on how to start these conversations, how to express their hopes and their fears and their vulnerability, and help them understand that their loved ones need a little bit of time. You know, you can't sit down with somebody and say, hey, you know, my quality of life is really poor, and I'm thinking of ending my life, and, you know, I'm looking at next Tuesday. Is that okay? <laughs> right, that, <laughs> that that's not going to go over well. Yeah. Um, so it does, it takes time and effort, but it, it's well worth it um, to, to bring people together. And I think it really does make the grieving on the back end also just much, much easier. You know, you don't have a lot of the hanging questions that you might have. Yeah. So, um, and we also have, as you had noted, um, some medical criterion that, you know, people must submit. Part of their application is a personal statement about their quality of life, about their values, but they must submit medical records with that as well in order to, um, to work with us. I will note that unlike, unlike medical aid and dying, you were drawing that distinction earlier, we do not require that people be within six months of death. We do recognize that there's a lot of horrific illnesses such as dementia um, where suffering can go on for years. And so 
Okay, so so here comes John Doe, and he's met all the criteria, and you've talked to the family, and you they're as supportive as they could be. You can't push that past a certain point. So what happens next? Um, so, yeah, the guides, you know, when people come to the exit guide program, they're typically only looking for nuts and bolts, right? They're coming to us because they want the how-to information. Mm-hmm. Um, but our guides provide a whole lot more than that. The first big chunk is what you just mentioned, you know, having those conversations, bringing the family members on board, getting people to understand. Um, We spend a lot of time on the phone before actually visiting a client. So there's the discussions that need to be had. The guide will also work with the client on understanding their disease progression um, in relationship to their circumstances. Uh, We talk a lot about the window of opportunity. So a lot of discussions about, okay, what's going to happen if you do lose your window? What are your backup plans? Do you understand how to use VSED? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The guide would also be working with the individual on considerations for post-death. You know, who's going to discover the body? What do you want to have happen to your body? Are there letters that you might like to write to a wide range of people that, you know, you don't necessarily want to tell them ahead of time, but that you want these letters sent after your death, bringing all that stuff together. Um, The guide would also help the client and and provide a list of equipment. You know, where do you go to, you know, how can you procure these things? Everything is publicly available. Um, And so once an individual has procured the equipment and the family is on board and the individual is ready to be educated. At that point, we would schedule a first or an education visit. Um, the guides, and we typically travel in, in pairs, the guides would arrive. You know, hopefully one or two close family members could be present um, and just discuss the situation, discuss the decision, you know, review some of the stuff that's been covered by phone. Um, and at that point is when the guides would educate the individual. and you know, describe how it is that the equipment is put together. The, you know, the client would, his or herself, put the equipment together. Uh, because we're using nitrogen and the air we breathe is something like 78.8% nitrogen, you can actually do a full rehearsal. You can turn the gas on and, and pull the bag down and breathe the nitrogen and just see what it feels like, mm-hmm. which is to say it doesn't feel like anything. Um, and then, you know, then at that point, the client is fully educated. And he or she has what she needs. Mm -hmm. And the peace of mind that comes with that is really palpable. I mean, at that point, the client has the equipment. They have the instructions. They know what to do. They can put their equipment in their closet. The choice, isn't it? You know? Yeah. It, It frees people up to get on with their life. They're no longer terrified of this future they can't avoid. They know they're in control. They can put their equipment in the closet and get on with things. Um, Do you happen to know the percentage of people who get to that point, to that in-person meeting, get the equipment in the closet, and then decide not to do it? Not that specifically, no. Um, Interesting to know. You know, not unlike, um, you know, peace of mind is interesting. And what I have found over the years is that different people get to different places along the process where that's enough. You know, for some clients, just being accepted for guide support, that's the peace of mind they needed. 
They never actually even buy the equipment. Some people get to the point where they buy the equipment, but they don't need to schedule the first visit. Some people have the first visit. They, you know, it, it really varies, but, you know, much like the medical aid and dying experience in the states that have medical aid and dying, yeah, only a percentage of those who, who apply and are accepted actually go on to exit. About 30% I've heard. Uh, for medical aid and dying? Yes, at least in Oregon, that's the last number that I heard. About 30% actually go through with it. I'd have to check the numbers. I thought it was the other way around. I thought sort of more like 60% or something actually took the prescription and 30% didn't or something. But I have to check on that too. Yeah, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> We've got to re- definitely reverse yeah. it. Um, okay, so... So you're, you deal with everybody by phone, and then at some point, someone goes directly to the person's house. So I guess you, you have guides all over the country, but if you have to travel to someplace where you don't have a guide, you will do that. Okay, so now the person has this equipment, and I would kind of like to get into the nuts of, and bolts of exactly what happens, if that's okay with you. What is um, the equipment, and what do they do with it? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want to provide, I mean, the information is publicly available, first of all, you know, for anybody who wants to have the information, we refer them to either Derek Humphrey's Final Exit 2020, which right. can be downloaded from the Ergo Euthanasia Research and Guidance Organization website, or from Drs. Nitschke and Stewart's The Peaceful Pill Handbook also has a lot of the technical information. And we'll put all this information on the uh, show notes on the website so people can find those links. Um, Oh, great. And they can be accessed from our website as well, finalexitnetwork.org. So we have the resources that that lists those two books that are good. Um, So as I said, the method of self-deliverance that we teach um, is the use of inert gas. So uh, the reason that this method of self-deliverance was discovered, or one of the reasons, is that inert gas can be very hazardous in an industrial setting, because if there's a leak and somebody enters an enclosed space that's nothing but inert gas, they don't realize that anything is wrong. They just pass out and die. Really? Um, So, sort of ironically, the reason it is so dangerous in an industrial setting is also the reason that it is so effective and comfortable for self-deliverance. Yeah. and so individuals, you know, as I said, they can purchase a tank, you know, a plastic bag is, is worn a bit, you know, like a space helmet, you know, it's fully inflated. I do like to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. The minute you start talking about plastic bags, I think people envision all sorts of things that are unpleasant and, and it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a spacious and comfortable um, way to be. And, you know, an individual will pass out really pretty quickly and then typically die within 10 to 15 minutes after that. But they're unconscious way before that. Oh, yes. They're unconscious much faster. Um, Interesting. And so. I know that, you know, there are some technical things. So uh, no one else is present. Well, no, actually, that's one of the things our exit guide service does is we, we accompany the individual so that we're with them. Do the family members come too? ever? Um, occasionally. Um, you know, I think that's a little hard for most family members. And also it does, that's not necessarily the last way they want to see their loved one. Um, you know, the plastic bag, as I said, it's, it's spacious, it's inflated like a space helmet. Um, but it's not elegant, certainly. So, you know, 
different clients will play it differently. Sometimes the family members will say their goodbyes and then leave before the guides come. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, I'll arrive for the exit visit. The family members will be there. We'll all talk. Then I and the other guide will withdraw. They'll say their goodbyes. And then the family members will leave. Um, you know, and occasionally a family member will want to stay with us, but, but the guides can certainly be present. And that's, that's one of the services that we offer. I think that's just beautiful. I, I love it. And, and a point that, you know, I've seen made in uh, other interviews or wherever I saw this for Final Exit Network is that there are a lot of people, old, sick people especially, who kill themselves in terrible ways because they don't have another option. There was a really famous case in Arizona many years ago, and I actually have a friend who knew this family, where this man um, had cancer. He had just gotten a diagnosis of a very uh, advanced cancer, and his wife had dementia, and he'd been taking care of her. And he realized that as he got sicker and sicker with his cancer, or died, he wouldn't be able to take care of his wife. And they didn't have money for, you know, skilled nursing. They just, there was no other option. And what he did, and his family, he got his family on board with this, but he didn't tell them when he was going to do it. He took his wife out to the front lawn of the hospital and he shot her and shot himself. But first he called the hospital and said, you're going to find us on the lawn. Bang, bang. This was a very famous story. It's in Arizona. It's not the only one. Yes. You know, there is, there was actually someone who was deeply involved with Final Exit Network who was in a similar position in Florida. Yeah. Uh, it, it happens a lot more than people know. So, you know, that is not a good way to go. You know, it's much better to be lying in your own bed and gently go to sleep. <laughs> you know, and, and wake up on the other side or wherever you think you're going to go after that. We're a big believer in uh, waking up on the other side. Side, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's an option that I would love people to know about um, yeah. because you know, people always assume that a chosen death with gun is is sort of poorly considered or rash. But of course, a lot of people don't know about other options. You can have a very well considered, well chosen death with a firearm, but I just want to scream, look, there's better options. There's better ways to do this. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be such a dramatic exit. And it really does. And then, of course, now that's different than, you know, suicide that comes out of intense depression or anger or, you know, something else. So let's talk about that for a little bit, because I'm thinking about, you know, self-deliverance by firearm and people that I've personally known who've died by suicide with a gun because they were just freaking out about something and they couldn't deal with it anymore. And that mm -hmm. solution was suicide. So if you see a person who comes into your service who seems like that's what they're looking for, you wouldn't accept them, obviously. How do you differentiate and can, you know, because I think a lot of people might, you know, hear an interview like this and say, my boyfriend left me and I don't want to live anymore. And I'm going to call them and see if they can take me out. <laughs> well, we do get calls from people who want to know if we can be there tomorrow at 9 a.m. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh. No, no, we can't be. Um, so, you know, we do have a pretty extensive screening process. 
Um, and the length of time needed in and of itself is part of the screening process. It just, it can take time. You talk to the coordinator, you have to write a personal statement, you have to get your medical records, you submit them, you're interviewed. So that you sort know. of eases pers- the person out of crisis mode. Like if they're, right. yeah, if they're going to, then they'll just go shoot themselves anyway, I guess. Exactly. It, it's, it's a process. You end up, you have to supply medical records. You have to talk to a number of different people. Yeah. You, you just can't, you know, as I said, the, the, the choice is well considered yes. is really what matters to us. So you have a lot of people who are asking you about your choice, talking to you about your choice over a period of time. Nice. Um, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, uh, I really appreciate this. Um, this is a great topic for the Afterlife Conference. I know that our members and the listeners of this are going to really appreciate this information. So the easiest way for people to find you is finalexitnetwork.org. Exactly. Our website is a great place to go. Um, And you can ask questions on our contact page um, or just get information. Our resources menu has a lot of things on it. You can get our supplemental advanced directive for dementia care to add that your advanced directive also on our, I think under our services menu. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lowry. This has been an excellent conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your excellent work. My pleasure. So everybody, as a reminder, the uh, virtual afterlife conference is coming up June 24th through 27th. It's completely online and you can get information and register at www.afterlifeconference.com. If you're not already a subscriber, you'll find a link there to subscribe to our newsletter, The Afterlife Advocate, which comes out every month and is full of really interesting articles, uh, research on afterlife research, near-death experience, uh, trends, in uh, the death uh, awareness movement, all kinds of good stuff. And um, But most importantly, right now, it's time to register for the Afterlife Conference. So see you at afterlifeconference.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's podcast. And I'd like to give you a couple of coupon codes before you go. I would first love for you to go to path11tv.com and I'd like you to sign up for your free seven-day trial. If you like what we have on there, which I know you will, I would like you to go ahead on checkout and put in the code PODCAST30. That's going to give you 30% off of the annual subscription. And uh, the Afterlife Awareness Conference is also giving Path 11 podcast listeners $40 off the general admission ticket for the virtual conference this year. You can go to afterlifeconference.com. You can purchase your general admission ticket through Eventbrite and put the code. There's a place in the top left corner. You go ahead and click that coupon code and put in PATH40. Again, that's PATH40, and that's going to give you $40 off of the general admission ticket. So with the Afterlife Awareness Conference, they are also giving you six months of free replays. So if you cannot make the conference on June 24th through the 27th, that's not a problem. We will give you six months to rewatch that conference at your leisure. So again, two coupon codes, path11tv.com. Get 30% off by using podcast 30 and afterlifeawarenessconference.com. Go ahead and use path 40 to get $40 off your general admission ticket. Thanks everyone. Talk to you soon. 